this morning we're going to be looking at, uh, as I mentioned, a passage of Scripture that unfortunately is not always within our traditions when it comes to Christmas time. Um, Christmas has a set of readings that most of you are familiar with, and over the years we've given quite a bit of attention to those, those passages of Scripture. We read about the angel appearing to Mary and telling Mary that she was to be with child. We read about Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem for the birth of the child, no room in the inn. We read of the shepherds, as we did on Christmas Eve, receiving that angelic choir, the proclamation that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem. There's that famous story of the Magi, the wise men who travel following the star to find the place that Jesus was born. Sometimes we read of Herod's attempt to eliminate Jesus, to eliminate all of the boys born in Bethlehem under the age of two, a hope to put an end to Jesus before any challenge to Herod's throne. But it struck me how rarely we read Matthew's story of Jesus, along with Mary and Joseph, his parents, and their flight to Egypt, as it is so often called. By the time Christmas is complete, Sundays like this, the 26th, most churches jump right into a January sermon series. I don't know if you know this, but a little behind the scenes, you're supposed to come January, preach something about like goals or about turning over a new leaf or a new year, a new beginning kind of thing. So normally churches have planned out these January series that kick off a new year. Um, It may not be true on the 26th, but they say, you know, people show up for church, set new patterns, new goals for January. And so what often happens is this story in Matthew between Jesus's emergence as as a teacher, his baptism and his birth, this story of his earliest time spent as a child fleeing Bethlehem and going to Egypt often gets cut out of our traditions of reading. Um, I was speaking this week to a friend of mine who's Missouri Synod Lutheran, and he was discuss- we were discussing our Christmas service plans. They actually do Christmas Eve service, Christmas Day service, Sunday service. So they had quite a few services lined up. And we were talking about what I was preaching on this week. And he was saying that in their tradition, their lect- lectionary, their, their planned uh, set of scripture reading. So all of the churches are reading the same passages of scripture on particular Sundays each year. That it actually includes this story of the flight to Egypt just a few weeks after Christmas. So for them, it's a passage of scripture they actually come to annually, which I thought was interesting. I, don't, I know I've never preached on this passage of scripture. And to be honest with you, I wasn't super familiar with sermons that I had heard past on this or preached on this passage as well. So I was looking forward to it. Um, an interesting passage of scripture, and I hope it does as much for you today as it has for me this past week working through it. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse 13, Matthew chapter two, beginning in verse 13. It's titled the flight to Egypt. And the story picks up just after the wise men, the Magi, it'll be referred to in this first verse as when they had departed, that they being those wise men who had come to find Jesus as an infant. So Matthew chapter two, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, this being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had he had ascertained from the wise men. 
Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard of Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 2. That story that we read has its setting, as you probably saw, set in the middle of the story of Herod and the Magi. Many of you are familiar with it. I bet some of the kids could even tell us that story as well, too. The wise men had come from the east to find Jesus following a star. They had stopped in to talk with Herod, the ruler of the region. Herod had given them specific instructions that once they had found the child, they were to report back so that Herod, too, could go and worship the infant Jesus. We're pretty sure that Herod's motives are not entirely worshipful or pure. His real plan is that he could eliminate Jesus, the one who they were calling the King of the Jews, a title that Herod had and wanted protected for himself. The Magi figure out this plan, and instead of going back to Herod to report where they had found Jesus, simply leave the country without giving Herod any details. And so we read in our story that when Herod found out that he had been tricked by them, he was furious and he ordered the execution of all boys under the age of two in Bethlehem, a date, a time frame that he had received from the Magi looking for Jesus and his attempt to rid any possible threat to his throne. We spent some time early on when we were in John's gospel about January or February of last year talking about Herod the Great. As you remember, we encounter several of these Herods through the biblical text, Herod the Great making an appearance here, and then most of the other Herods we meet, sons who are ruling over a broken up kingdom of Herod the Greats. We do know quite a bit about Herod the Great. Herod was famous for his construction projects. He had led a a major renovation of the temple complex and built several structures that were considered wonders of the time there within Israel, some you could still visit and see today. He was known as a great ruler, a great builder, a man of great skill, but he was also known for his brutality and also for his suspicion, and in those later years of his life, for his rapid decline into a kind of madness. Herod was constantly suspicious of the people around him, that they were plotting, that they were aligning themselves to take his power. Within his life, he wrongfully executed two of his sons that he suspected were plotting treason against him. While he was laying in bed dying, he ordered another son executed for making too early moves to take control once Herod had died. He was fighting for his power even as he lay in bed dying. He also executed his first wife, Mariamne, for what he believed were acts of treason against him. And there's a story that Josephus tells that when he knew that he was in the process of dying, his last weeks, he knew that all of Israel would celebrate upon his death because he was so disliked by the people. So before he died, he gathered all of the most prominent Jewish leaders together and held them in an amphitheater and had given orders to family members to execute all of these men upon his death so that there would be weeping and sorrow and mourning around Jerusalem. 
Josephus specifically records his instructions as, I know the Jews will greet my death with wild rejoicing, but I can be mourned on other people's account and make sure of, of a magnificent funeral if you will do as I tell you. These men under guard, as soon as I die, kill them with me. So this is the guy we're dealing with when we discover that Jesus is now being called king of the Jews and worshipped by wise men from the east, and Herod catches word of it. It's no surprise, and it fits within this image of Herod, we know, that he would move quickly and he would move with violence to put an end to any threat from an infant or any, even a family member. There's a famous line that during this time of Herod's rule, uh, the emperor in Rome said it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. Of course, Jews abstaining from pork. In other words, you were safer to be a pig in his house than one of his own children. We're dealing with somebody brutal, suspicious, and descending in a kind of madness. This is the king who had entertained the wise men with the word of king of the Jews, And now, frustrated and furious at having been tricked by him, has made the infant Jesus the target of his power and his violence. We read that Joseph, once again, received a prophetic dream. This is the same kind of thing that we saw happen earlier to Joseph. Remember that Joseph had been engaged to Mary, and when he had found out that Mary was with child, he had made plans to separate from her, but not to shame her publicly. But then an angel appeared in a dream... And instructed Joseph to marry Mary and to have the son who would be called Jesus. And so it is now Joseph has another one of these dreams. At this point, Joseph seems like the kind of guy who's probably willing to listen to the dreams that he's having. Uh, The whole thing with the infant Jesus had played out just like it had before. And so when he receives this command in a dream to take Mary and Jesus and to flee into Egypt for protection, he does just that. He wakes, he leaves saves the child and mother by fleeing to the nation of Egypt. In the ancient world, that wouldn't have been a convenient trip, but it also wouldn't have been one that was impossible to make. Remember, this is not the ancient Egypt of Moses and the Pharaohs. We're in the time of the Roman Empire, in which Rome ruled over Egypt. Rome had control of Egypt. And Egypt, specifically cities like Alexandria within Egypt, had become one of the largest centers of the Jewish population outside of Israel. During the exile periods of the Old Testament, Jews had been scattered all over the nations, and a large, prominent group of Jews in a community in Alexandria had developed. So it may be that Joseph, knowing of a population of Jews in Alexandria or someplace in Egypt, knew that he would be easily welcomed there, probably able to find work. From where they were in Bethlehem into the interior of Egypt is a two or three hundred mile trip. So by foot, it would be something like going from here to St. Louis or a little bit further, maybe Springfield, Illinois. So not an impossible trip, but you can also imagine when it's not in the family plan that you've drawn up, not in the way you expected to be spending those first few years of your new child's life, the inconvenience of quickly the few things you could carry, escaping under the threat of violence to your child and trying to find a place to carve out a living in Egypt. Joseph most likely found work there amongst the Jews and probably stayed there for the first few years of Jesus' life. Eventually, word came down that Herod had died and that with his death, the threat to Jesus had ended. And so Joseph has another dream that he can bring his family back to Israel. They come and settle in the town of Nazareth, hearing that the ruler over Judea, where they had been in Bethlehem, 
was dangerous. Nazareth in the region of the Galilee was instead a kind of conservative Jewish community. Many of the most, the most conservative Jewish people from the Judea region had moved to the region of the Galilee. It was known, as we see even in Jesus's time, as being where some of the most radical or some of the most extreme of the Jewish community were. So it probably hints at the conservative nature of, Jewish, of, of Joseph and Mary as they try to find a safe Jewish town in which to raise their son. Nazareth becomes that place. It really is a pretty dramatic story when you stop and think about it. Herod, the great king, the great builder of Israel, out to eliminate an infant child. The trick, the games of the Magi to try to protect him. The flight to Egypt of all places. The death of all of the innocent children in Bethlehem. It is a dramatic scene. Herod slaughtering and violent, Jesus fleeing. Perhaps, though... The story fizzles out without much of the dramatic expectation. At the end of the day, the story is really about we moved and waited a few years and then came back home. For all of Herod's attempts, nothing really comes of it. Jesus is protected by a simple move to another place and then returned back to Israel. Perhaps it's why the other gospel writers don't include this story. But it plays a particularly interesting role in Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses this story for more than just the action or the drama. As exciting as the story might be, he's not telling it to us just so we could be amazed at it or see how remarkable the story was. Matthew, if you pay attention to the passage we read, is very specific about the fact that these things happened so that certain prophecies, the words of the prophets, might be fulfilled. And chief among those is the words Matthew records that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt, I called my son. This is where I often in sermons remind you that you have the Old Testament memorized by now. Many of you have been here years, so I know you've been doing your homework on that. And when these New Testament writers quote the first verse of a chapter in the Old Testament, they assume that you know everything else about that chapter, what the author was working towards, what he meant, how it fit into Israel's history. And that's no doubt the case when you hear the words, out of Egypt I called my son, you think to yourself immediately, Hosea chapter 11. Obviously, he's wanting us to turn to Hosea. The words in Hosea chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. What Hosea is writing about in that entire chapter is the way in which God had rescued Israel from Exodus. It refers to Israel as his son. This son, this nation, this beginning newborn nation of Israel called out of Egypt was led by God into the promised land. And so Hosea chapter 11 remembers the way that God had been faithful to Israel as a child, and yet faith, Israel had repeatedly turned away from God, worshiping instead idols and Baals. Um, Hosea isn't the kind of prophecy we sometimes think of when we think about Jesus fulfilling a prophecy. And it's important to understand how the New Testament authors think about these Old Testament prophets. It's not as if Hosea had said, one day there will be a son of God who will escape out of Egypt. Instead, Hosea spends his time talking about Israel. What Matthew recognizes is how this prophecy is fulfilled, not in that it had predicted what Jesus would do, but in that what Jesus did was a kind of overlap, a kind of resonance, a kind of echo with what had happened previously in Israel. 
When you begin to recognize this thing, you see this kind of prophecy all over the place. Both of these exist. Jesus will be called Emmanuel. Jesus will be born of a virgin. Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. These, these future predictions. But also there are these kinds of prophecies that are just resonance, echoes, themes that were present in the Old Testament that suddenly revealed themselves to be true in Christ as well. What Matthew is recognizing is the way in which Jesus' story plays out like the story of Israel's. And so by showing that to us, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is this son of God. The way that Israel could only have foreshadowed, Christ fulfills, lives out. Once you recognize that Matthew is doing this, showing Jesus to be like Israel, All of a sudden, Matthew's entire opening to his gospel begins to make sense. Matthew opens, if you look at chapter 1, with a genealogy. And in that genealogy, what he attempts to do is link Jesus back to David and to Abraham. In other words, he places Jesus within those opening Genesis stories of God forming a people through Abraham. Jesus, now one of those very descendants. He then goes on in the Old Testament stories. We know Israel ends up in Egypt and it is out of desperation that Jacob's sons are forced to flee to Egypt during a time of famine. But God called Israel out of Egypt, rescued them from Egyptian bondage and carried them to the promised land. So what does Matthew record? The genealogy placing Jesus back into this history. And then we read this story, his birth his move to Egypt. And then as Matthew points out, like Hosea had said of Israel, out of Egypt, I called my son. What does Matthew record immediately after this passage? Jesus' baptism. He moves into the baptismal waters, which many commentators have pointed out that Matthew uses language and hints at the way Israel had passed through the waters of the Red Sea, having fled Egypt. Where does Jesus go in Matthew's gospel immediately after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation, just as after passing through the waters of the Red Sea, Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years. So hopefully you see the way Matthew is structuring the beginning of his gospel by saying that Jesus is a resonance, an echo, a fulfillment of Israel's story in his own way. So what's the point of this? Maybe you're saying, interesting, I never noticed that before. My life has changed. I feel forever impacted by the way Matthew opened his gospel. Matthew is trying to show you that Jesus is God's son. Just as Israel was God's chosen people, just as Israel carried a special calling and purpose, and the way in which Israel revealed God's faithfulness, so too Christ in this gospel story that will play out will show himself to be, by God's sovereign plans, both his son, but also the one who bears his plans. Jesus bears God's sovereign plans and favor just as Israel did. God was doing something new in Jesus, just as he did when he formed Israel, when he called the patriarchs and led those patriarchs faithfully into a formation of a nation and then walked faithfully with that nation through their own idolatry and stumbling to the promised land and on into the great kings. Now Jesus represents something God is doing of that same magnitude or more. He is becoming a new Israel, a fulfillment of all of the things that Israel had struggled and wrestled to be. 
If you go back to that Hosea prophecy and read, keep reading, that second half, right after the part that Matthew quotes, I will call my son out of Israel, we read about Israel. The more they were called, though, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and offering burnt offerings to the idols. What Matthew is helping us recognize by quoting Hosea is that Jesus will get another crack, another opportunity of what Israel had struggled to be and do. And Jesus, unlike Israel, who found themselves constantly turning away, the more God called them, the more they wrestled. Jesus will be the faithful son who fulfills what Israel struggled to. There's another piece of that Hosea prophecy, though, that I think is worth taking note of. Matthew doesn't quote the first sentence, but the second sentence. Again, he assumes that you remember the context of the first. When Israel was a child, I loved him. That's the way that Hosea passage opens. To me, it sounds a lot like Matthew's words recorded at Jesus' baptism. As Jesus was baptized in the water, a voice from heaven spoke, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. In Hosea, God is speaking of Israel, the child that I love. And at his baptism, he is speaking of Christ. This is my son who I love. I want you to see a couple things from this passage this morning that I hope are as much of an encouragement for you as they've been for me. I want you to see that Christmas really is a story of conflict, that in the midst of it, we discover the faithfulness of a father, and that there is to us, because of Christ, a kind of promise extended in this story. I do think it's worth pointing out that for Mary and Joseph, the Christmas story is one of conflict. One they surely felt, full of anxiety and overwhelm. Some of this I talked about even as we were together on Christmas Eve. We imagined the quaint and quiet and sentimental scene of the nativity. But for Mary and Joseph, the events of Christ's birth were difficult. Certainly there was a kind of social stigma. People could do the math on when she had the baby and when they had gotten married. And in their world, that had all kinds of social implications. They were forced to leave Bethlehem as they had been forced to go to Bethlehem, their whole lives constantly upended by powers out of their control. They were forced to flee a king, the most powerful man in the region, who leveraged all of his power and strength and violence to execute the child that they had just brought into the world. And what a strange juxtaposition they live through this experience of Christmas. Angels and magi from the east bringing royal gifts to lay at their child's feet. The worshiping of shepherds, the choirs of angels. And then the very next day, run, flee for your life. The most powerful man in your region is determined to kill you and your child. How strange one night to hear the angels proclaiming the son of God born into the world. And the very next day, flee from Herod the madman. At Christmas, and as we head into this new year, so many of us spend this time taking inventory of our own lives. It's easy to see our own signs of suffering and loss, at times in our life, things falling apart, maybe just not going the way we had planned them or predicted them or worked to them. Sickness, your own experience of dread or anxiety or just overwhelm. It's so easy for those to begin to accumulate in our lives, and as we do the math and pay attention to them, to come to the kind of conclusion that perhaps God has abandoned us, 
Or perhaps he's just not all that interested or not all that good. Or perhaps for some, those losses come to the point of thinking perhaps he's not even real. But the conflict of Christmas reminds us that if Jesus himself, the son in which God loved, the son in which he sent into the world, that if he himself is hunted while helpless, if he finds himself at odds with the power of his own day, if his family must lose their home and place multiple times, and yet we recognize God has not abandoned him, but has destined him and purposed him to do even greater things than Israel had, then perhaps in the midst of our own difficulties, we can come to entertain the possibility that he's not abandoned us either. Perhaps things going the way we planned is not the right way of evaluating our lives. That our expectations being constantly met might not be the way we truly understand the favor of God over our lives. One of the great traps of our daily life is thinking that we have the wealth and the information to plot out our lives the way we want them. We plan, we dream, we have all kinds of built up expectations, and we expect that a good God would cater to all of those desires and requests and see them fulfilled. But we don't have a genie. We have a father. A father who at times rescues us in divine, miraculous ways. Choirs of angels breaking in. Who at times speaks to us in subtle dreams and protects us, though it costs us our place. A heavenly father who warns us, but then expects us to act. But as the heartbeat of the story reminds us, always speaks, this is my son whom I love. God's story seen in the life of Jesus and the life of Israel both is not one of smooth sailing. Once you get in, things gradually just get better and better and better. And the more you get rid of sin, the better things go for you. The truth is they face all kinds of hardships and pains and loss and confusion. I imagine Mary That great scene we often depict of her swaddling the child, the peaceful Christmas night, didn't imagine the next day throwing everything in a suitcase and rushing to Egypt. I imagine along the way she and Joseph probably had conversations about this isn't how I imagined welcoming the Son of God into the world to go. But yet God is faithful. Perhaps it's through these moments, days in Egypt, the flight itself, Seasons in wilderness, the temptation of the surrounding idols, our rebirth into this new people through baptism, that it's through these moments that we come to recognize that God truly is faithful. We come to recognize it in ways that if everything just worked out perfectly, we might not fully understand. He does not abandon his people. He does not forget their needs, but hears their cries, feeds them with manna, frees them from slavery writes his words within their hearts, sees them home to the promised land, thwarts the rulers of the age. He's a faithful father. Perhaps that would be enough for this passage. Look at how good Jesus is to Israel, although they often fail him. Look at how good he is to Jesus, the way he preserves him. We see the way that Jesus fulfills what Israel could not But I think there's something one step more in the passage for you and I. 
The New Testament authors constantly burst into the description of our adoption by God, that we are counted by God through Jesus as sons and daughters ourselves. First John records, beloved, we are God's children now. We know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Or from Paul's letter to the Romans, this means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as his offspring. Or from Paul's letter to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. To the letter of the Ephesians, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or remember Jesus's own words from Matthew's gospel. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What I want you to hear this morning is that Israel's story becomes Jesus' story. And that Jesus' story becomes your story, that you are caught up into this promise. Through Jesus, you have been adopted into the family of God, and every promise made to Israel, made to Jesus, is made to you. He was faithful to Israel, he was faithful to Christ, and the same God is faithful to you. There's another Old Testament passage that comes up in Matthew's depiction of this story. In response to the slaughter of the innocent children, the boys in Bethlehem, Matthew quotes a lament passage from Jeremiah 31. It's the passage you see there sort of set out about uh, weeping in Ramah, Rachel crying for her children. In Jeremiah 31, Israel is lamenting over having been conquered and exile. And Jeremiah 31 is a chapter of lament, mourning what has been lost. But the chapter is titled in my Bible, Jeremiah 31, The Lord will turn mourning into joy because that chapter, again, Matthew anticipating, you know, it ends not just with lament, but with a promise. These are the words from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the day is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them out by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 also includes, Is Ephraim my dear son, Ephraim the firstborn of Israel? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Here's what I want you to hear this morning that I think Matthew is getting at by the fulfillment of these Old Testament voices. Things do not always go the way you want. Things don't always work out. This world is broken and violent and distorted, and you feel it now, and you will still in ways to come. But God is faithful to his son. 
Through Jesus, you have been made that child. And those words spoken of a day to come when all would know him are the promise given to you. That though he has spoke against us and pointed out our sin, he remembers us still. His heart yearns for you. You surely have his mercy over you, declares the Lord. All of those promises of his faithfulness and desire are yours. He forgives your iniquity. He calls you the child he loves dearly. He remembers you. His heart is for you. Surely he will show you mercy beyond what you had imagined. This morning we're going to close together by taking communion. We do this often in this congregation as a way of remembering and participating. A way of participating in Christ. The very symbols of communion is us taking in the body and blood of Christ. That we might have what is his. And so it is that when we take communion together, we make a proclamation to ourselves but to those around us. That we are to be counted as Christ's people. That we are to share in Christ's promises. His death and his resurrection. That by these elements of communion, he is not only God's son, but we are adopted into God's family and made sons along with him. As Jesus said, we are his brothers and sisters. Paul passed on this tradition to the churches, writing to the Corinthians, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Those words from Jeremiah, a new covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we often eat this bread and drink this cup, we count ourselves to be Christ's. And so by it inherit all of the promises and faithfulness that God had given to Israel and on to Christ now to us as we share in his body and in his blood. Let's pray together over the elements. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that in these stories we are more like Israel than we are Christ. That you call us and yet we go astray. That you pour grace and mercy out on us and yet we sin against you. That you give us good things and yet we desperately clutch at what we want. Our expectations and our own plans. So this morning we hold these elements as a way of saying we are willing to die to ourselves to live in you. That we share in your death so that we might share in your resurrection. And that it's by your faithfulness, not our own, that we are welcomed into this relationship, sons and daughters. God, I pray that your spirit would just impress upon our hearts, each of us, the affection you have for us. God loves you. That's the words we hear echoed again. And I pray that by your spirit, they would resonate within us, not in some sentimental way, but in a way that emboldens us and encourages us and fills us with joy and a sense of your steadfast, faithful presence to us. Lord, we eat these elements and drink this cup today 
in remembrance of you until you come again, counting ourselves to be your people by your death and by your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.